Habakkuk 2, starting at verse 2. Then the Lord replied, Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets, so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. See, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright. But the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. Indeed, wine betrays him. He is arrogant and never at rest. Because he is as greedy as the grave, and like death is never satisfied, he gathers to himself all the nations and takes captive all the peoples. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Good to see you all. Thank you for joining this morning. It's a lot more encouraging when there's lots of us and there's a good number of us this morning. Um, I think I recognise most of you, but if, uh, you've not, if we've not met, my name is Andrew. Uh, I'm the curate here at St. Helens. So we're continuing our series in Habakkuk, um, this Old Testament book. Uh, we started last week in chapter 1, and we're continuing. We finished with something of a cliffhanger last week. So if you're wanting to follow along, we are in Habakkuk. Um, actually, I don't know the page number. Is that one? What's the... 9941, nine, and thank you, Zablon. And if you're struggling to find it, it's just after Nahum. That's, a, that's supposed to be a joke, because Nahum's also really hard to find, but um, don't worry. Next time, next time. Cool. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you for your word to us. This world that we live in uh, has so much that is broken, so much that is not right, so much that is difficult, both far away and close to home, on the global scale, but also in our lives. And so, Father, as we look again at this book, written by your faithful servant Habakkuk, who looked out at his world and saw a world that was broken and found that hard, may we find comfort and encouragement in his words this morning. And we pray that in Jesus' great name. Amen. Well, you don't need me to tell you that. We live in a world of injustice. Unsolved murders. Unconvicted rapists. Atrocities in war. Terrorism. Kidnappings. Abductions. Human trafficking. Slavery. Social inequality. Habakkuk's prayer in chapter 1 of his book might well be our prayer. If you've got it open there, page 940, look with me again at verse 2. We, like Habakkuk, might easily want to say, How long, O Lord, must we call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? Why do you make us look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? 
destruction and violence are before us. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore the law is paralysed and justice never prevails. Well, as true today as it was in Habakkuk's day, about 1,600, 2,600 years ago. So Habakkuk lived in Israel about 600 years before the coming of Jesus. He lived in Israel, Israel supposedly God's people. Israel supposedly a holy nation. Supposedly a light to the nations. But as Habakkuk looked around his own nation, what he saw, what he's describing there in those first few verses, sickened him. The rich oppressing the poor. The strong crushing the weak. Injustice, inequality, and God robbed of his honour as the nation turned away from him. He'd brought them out of Egypt, out of slavery. He'd brought them into their own good land. And now they are turning away in the peace and safety they now have. They are turning away to worship other gods, sacrificing to other gods, following their foul religious practices, temple prostitution, self-harm, even child sacrifice. And that is what caused Habakkuk's prayer to burst forth. How long, O Lord, do I have to look at this? Why, God, are you not doing anything about this? Why do you allow these evil things to happen? A question that many of us might just as easily ask. And God gives Habakkuk an answer. The NIV translators have helped us here, so we get Habakkuk's complaint followed by the Lord's answer there in bold. But Habakkuk didn't like the Lord's answer. Because the Lord's answer was, don't worry, judgment is coming, I'm going to send the Babylonians to invade you. And then all the oppressing of strong and weak within Israel and all the injustice will stop because the Babylonians will be in charge instead. And last week Steve said that would be like us saying, Lord, when are you going to do something about knife crime? And God says, don't worry, give it a couple of weeks and the Russians will be rolling through London with their tanks. And we would say, well, that's much worse. Why would we want that? And so Habakkuk says, look, how, God, can you judge your nation with a people that is worse? Yes, we are bad, but we're not as bad as them. Verse 13, Habakkuk says, look, God, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent looking ahead while the wicked Babylonians swallow up those more righteous than themselves. That is, other nations and then, finally, Israel. Is that it? Habakkuk says in in verse 17, is he the Babylonian to keep on emptying his net, destroying nations without mercy? Is that the end of it? Habakkuk says, so we're bad. Are the Babylonians going to come in and destroy us? And then their empire is just going to carry on forever. And the Lord says, no. They will be judged too. And the first thing that God says to Habakkuk is, the justice you seek will come. The justice you seek will come. And turning to today's verses, read with me from chapter 2, verse 2. Then the Lord replied, write down the revelation, i.e. what God has just said to Habakkuk, 
and what God will say to Habakkuk. Write down this revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. Why is Habakkuk to write it down? Well, he's to write it down because it's not happening straight away. It's happening in, we're not quite sure, maybe it's a few decades, maybe it's a hundred years or so, but it's not yet. Write it down so that in future generations, heralds will be able to read these tablets and take that message out. And he tells us that's why, verse 3, 4, because, write it down, because the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end. And it will not prove false. It will come true in time. Though it linger, wait for it, it will certainly come and will not delay. Well, what will come and what will not delay? Judgment on the Babylonians. So that problem again, Israel is wicked. And God says, I'll judge their wickedness with a more wicked nation, the Babylonians. And Habakkuk says, that's even worse. And God says, don't worry, judgment will come on them too. And we get the verdict on them in verses 4 to 6. God says to Habakkuk, see the enemy, the Babylonians. The enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright. And skipping to verse 5. Indeed, wine betrays him. He is arrogant and never at rest. He is as greedy as the grave. Like death, he is never satisfied. He gathers to himself all the nations and takes captive all the peoples. And the Babylonian Empire at that time was the greatest empire that they had seen. But judgment is coming. Verse 6, will not all of them, that is, the nations that he has enslaved, will not all of them taunt him with ridicule and scorn, saying, and then we get this, these woes against the nation of Babylon that we'll look at next week, spoken as if from the mouths of those who were oppressed by the Babylonians. So they suffer under the Babylonians, and then when judgment comes on Babylon, then these woes are pronounced against that one who oppressed them when justice comes. And judgment will come on the Babylonian Empire in the form of the Persian Empire, who come in and destroy the Babylonians. Now, I don't know how familiar all this stuff is, whether you've read much or any of the Old Testament or all of it several times, who knows, and how you feel about it. And I don't know how many times I've said the word justice and judgment so far this morning, but it's quite a few. And if you talk to people in the street, or even if you talk to people in church about judgment and about the idea of a God who judges... Well, lots of people say, well, talking about that kind of stuff is the reason I don't like to read the Old Testament. Talking about that stuff, I don't want to think of a God who judges. Can't God just forgive? Isn't that God's job, to forgive? I don't want a God who judges. I refuse to believe in a God who judges. I want a God of love, a God who accepts everyone. I imagine in this room there's a spectrum of what, are, what we think about that. But if we do think that, if we do think a God of just love and forgiveness would be better than a God of justice and judgment, well, I don't think that is what we want at all. 
as I said, we started thinking about the injustice in the world. And if there is no final justice, then the perpetrators of injustice get away with it. Unsolved murders, unconvicted rapists, human traffickers, kidnappers, slave holders get away with it. Miroslav Volf, he uh, was part of the former, lived in the former Yugoslavia, and he writes this. He says, I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? He says this, God is love, and God loves every person and every creature. And that is exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out, some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry. Or think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandparently fashion? by refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrator's basic goodness. Wouldn't God be fiercely angry with them? And he concludes this way, though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. God isn't wrathful despite being love. God is wrathful because God is love. And it's the same with us. If we look at the injustice in the world and feel nothing, well then that is because we lack love. As we look at injustice out there, we should feel angry. We should feel angry at the injustice of the world. Now, our anger is always mixed because we are fallen, inadequate, weak humans. But God's anger, that is pure and it is perfect. And so God's judgment, these judgments spoken of in the Old Testament and looking forward, God's judgment is a good thing. Because it means that there will be a time when all victims will see justice. No one will get away with anything. Everything will be exposed and brought to light. Think of Harold Shipman. Probably, they think, statistically by numbers, the worst serial killer known. But he hanged himself in his cell. And after that had happened, after he was convicted and then hanged in his cell, The Economist published a cartoon which showed him escaping out of the bars of his cell 
using a rope made of blankets with a noose on the end and running away. The implication, he didn't face justice for his crimes. He took his own life and he didn't face justice. Or think of Jimmy Savile and all that he did. But at his death, we didn't know about it. At his death, he was still Sir Jimmy Savile, much-loved Jimmy Savile, TV celebrity Jimmy Savile. It's only after death that we discovered what he had done. If there is no justice, he gets away with it. And so it is good news that God will bring judgment. It is good news. Well, justice would be done on the Babylonians. And it's easy to look at the Babylonians and say, well, they, like some of the others we've just thought about, they deserved it. They were thieves. They were exploiters. They were slave drivers. They were sexual predators. They were idolaters. But here's where we have to consider the four fingers pointing back at ourselves. If we believe that judgment is right for others, then we must also consider that judgment might be right for us. Miroslav Wolf goes on to say, once we accept the appropriateness of God's wrath, condemnation and judgment, there is no way of keeping it out there, reserved for others. We have to bring it home as well. If I want it to fall on evildoers, I must also let it fall on myself. Because theft doesn't just mean breaking and entering. It includes illegal streaming of sports or movies or massaging our work expenses or rounding down on our tax form. And exploiting of others isn't limited to those who built empires like Babylon, but also putting down others to exalt ourselves, building our personal empires of reputation. And though we may not be sweatshop owners, are we indifferent to the suffering that may be caused by the things that we buy? We may not be rapists, but do we take from others sexual pleasure that is not theirs to give or ours to take? Do we create the demand for the abuses of pornography by watching its products? We may not bow down to wooden statues or visit temple prostitutes or sacrifice our children in the fire, but do we sacrifice other things for our security? Do we look to things other than God for our security, comfort and joy? Judgment is coming on all of us, and who can endure it when it comes? Well, on the day when judgment would fall on the Israelites and then on the Babylonians, who would withstand it? I moved over this verse. End of chapter 2, verse 4. The righteous person will live by his faithfulness. Chapter 2, pretty much the whole chapter, is condemnation and judgment against the Babylonians. And then there's this one verse. Chapter 2, verse 4. The righteous person will live by his faithfulness. And if you're looking at it, you see there against um, the word faithfulness, there's a little D, which points you down to the footnote that says, or faith. So some Bible translations translate it faith. That's probably the more famous translation. Some here translate it faithfulness. The righteous will live by their faith. And this is rightly a very famous verse because it is one of the big hints in the Old Testament against the common misunderstanding that the Old Testament was about law and that the New Testament was about faith. 
Old Testament and New, it was always about faith. What is coming on the Babylonians, on Israel, is God's judgment. And imagine it in your head. As that judgment comes, it sweeps across the whole land, crushing everything in its path. And as it does so, the only hope is faith in the God who brings that judgment. And that is a pattern throughout the Old Testament that would have been familiar to the Israelites by now. So in the flood, the judgment passed across the whole land, apart from Noah and his family who had faith in God and entered the ark and were saved. In the Passover, judgment passed through the whole land, apart from on those houses where the blood of a lamb was painted above the doors because they had faith in God and put their trust in the substitute that he provided. At the Red Sea, both Egypt and Israel passed through the sea, but judgment came down on the Egyptians and not on the Israelites who had faith. At Jericho, Rahab was the only one to survive as the walls came down and those in the city were killed, but Rahab, who put her faith in Christ and those in, in God and those in the house with her, were saved. That is always the pattern. God's people are saved by a judgment that passes through, judging their enemies, but they will be saved if they have faith in their God. Those who are truly God's people are saved as he brings judgment upon their enemies, even though the whole nation be swept into exile. Habakkuk says the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. But if you followed with me in that imagination experiment, you might have a good question. Okay, what did that actually mean for them? What did that actually mean for a faithful Israelite living in Israel when the Babylonians invaded? Does it mean that as the Babylonians invaded the land, they would only destroy the houses and burn the fields of unfaithful Israelites? And then every now and then, you'd see a house and fields unburnt, and you'd say, ah, there lives a righteous Israelite who has trusted in God. Or at the end of the exile, when the Persians came through and destroyed the Babylonians, did it mean that only the righteous Israelites would be the ones who would have lived through the exile and would be able to go home again? Well, it's a ridiculous idea, isn't it? just as ridiculous as the idea that Christians might be able to avoid all suffering in this life. You see, God never promises that full and complete and total judgment, full and complete and total justice will be done in this life. He promises that true and full and complete justice will come on the last day when the Lord Jesus returns. The righteous will live by faith. In summer of 1949, in Montana, in the Man Gulch River Valley, it was one of the hottest days on record, and lightning struck and a fire started. And the fire was radioed in and nine smoke jumpers were dispatched. This was a recently formed team, as I say, in, in the mid-1900s. Although the team leader, he was a man who'd been there at the beginning, he was a, a man with uh, nine years of experience on the team. Smoke jumpers being men who would be parachuted into the area 
to cut down the brush and try and beat back the fire. But by the time they arrived, the fire was already out of control. They were told it was already a small blaze, but it had taken control. To make it worse, their radio parachute didn't open and it smashed on the rocks. The fire was in the trees on one side of the valley and Wag determined they couldn't fight it. It was too big already. And so he moved his team across to the other side of the valley, across the other side of the river. But the wind turned and brought the fire down the south side of the valley. It jumped the river in the bottom and it began to chase the men up the north side of the valley. Well, needless to say, they ran, sprinting up the steep incline, trying to reach the ridge, running with all their strength. But all those who tried to run died on that hillside. They couldn't outrun the fire. And the Bible tells us that God's judgment is coming. And as we've seen, it is a good thing that that is happening because it means that true justice will come. But as we also saw, it will be on all of us for the wrongs that we have done. And we can't outrun it. We can't escape it. We can't withstand it. And the danger is that we live by what our eyes see. We look around in the world and we say, well, I'm not as bad as them. Oh, I haven't done what she's done. I'm not like him, so I'll be okay. But if we live by the word of God, if we understand that true righteousness is to love God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength and love our neighbour as ourselves, well then we know that we wouldn't be able to stand on that day in our own righteousness. If we accept that justice is a good thing, we must accept that it also be turned back upon us. Well, on that day in 1949, as Wag started to run up the slope and then realised that neither he nor his team were going to make it, he stopped to think, and he had an idea. And he took a box of matches out of his pocket, and with the slope going up ahead of him and the wind at his back, he bent down and lit the grass in front of him. And he shouted to his team to stop, but none of them did. He lit the grass in front of him, and the fire took hold, and that's, in the same way, raced up the hill. And he then stepped forward onto that burned ground and lay down on the charred ground, put a wet rag over his face, and waited. And for a short while, the fire blazed either side of him. He said that so, it was so hot that the gusts of wind that fell almost a couple of times were going to lift him off the ground, but then it passed and he was safe and he escaped. He was safe because where the fire had burnt once, it couldn't burn again. Where the fire had already burned once, it couldn't burn again. Well, God's judgment, when it comes, will be fierce. It will make that fire look like a cosy fireside blaze. But if we are in Christ, then we have nothing to fear from that judgment. We have nothing to fear because Jesus stood in our place and God's anger burned against him. 
he was the righteous man with perfect faith that Habakkuk spoke of. He was the righteous lamb. He was the righteous one looked forward to throughout the whole of the Old Testament. And in him there is salvation. Because where God's judgment has burned once in Christ already, it cannot burn again. For some of us, there are different scales of people. Some of us are overconfident and some of us are always cautious. Some of us are worried. For some of you, if you ever worry whether you're good enough, you've put your trust in Christ, but is that enough? Is it enough to have put your trust in Christ? Is Jesus' death really enough to take away your sins? Yes. If we trust in Christ, where God's anger has already passed over on Christ, it cannot, cannot burn again. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Well, so we've said, justice, God's justice is coming. That's a good thing. All sin will be punished. All unrighteousness will be judged. And the one who is in Christ will be saved. Obviously, that means that we must put our trust in Christ. We must want to do that and put our trust in the good God who will judge rightly and faithfully. There are two ways to live. Faith in ourselves, that we are pure enough, good enough, righteous enough to withstand the all-seeing, all-knowing God. Or faith in Christ. And as we look around at the injustice of this world, we can take comfort Whatever happens, whatever happens with the inquest into Grenfell Tower, whatever happens with all the unsolved crimes, whatever happens with knife crime on our streets, whatever happens in the war zones around the world, justice will be done. No one will get away with anything. And that is a good thing. Let's pray. Father God, you are good, and so of course all that you do is good. It is because you love the creation that you have made that you will bring all justice. It is good. But it's not easy. It is hard to believe. It can be hard to believe. Hard to believe that it can happen. But also hard truths about what may be coming in the future. And so we pray that you would help us to believe it. May we, like Habakkuk, continue to put our trust in you. To pray to you. To wrestle with you to trust in you and to look to you, the God of love, the God of justice. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.